would invite you to turn with me to Psalm 85 if you have uh, a Bible with you. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. We've got one in the back that uh, we would love for you to have. This is the second week of our Advent series called A Promise Kept. And last week, we looked at this idea of longing, and we said that uh, here we are, we are created for another world. We were made for another world where man would be right with creation, and even more importantly, where mankind would be right with his creator. And while we await that new world, we experience a sense of longing. We pine for what is to come. This morning, uh, we're going to look at the concept of lament from Psalm 85. And I mentioned last week that Advent, which just means, it's a Latin word that means arrival or coming, is a reference to the coming of Jesus Christ, and uh, specifically His birth under the Bethlehem sky and, and what all that entailed. But also, the original, the first Advent, is meant to point us to uh, the second Advent, the second coming of Christ. And as Christians, we have a foot in two worlds, you might say. Uh, the already of the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus, but then the not yet of the, the coming of Jesus and our own resurrection. So we're caught in the middle, as it were. Well, what is life like as we are caught in the middle? It's a series of ups and downs, isn't it? I mean, sometimes we have uh, seasons and moments of great happiness, and everything seems to be going smoothly in our relationships and in our jobs, in our families, and, and we actually enjoy a sense of stillness and rest and it's a very uh, rich thing. But then, of course, in an instant, things can to totally change. They can unravel, and our stillness gives way to unrest, anxiety, worry, and despair, disappointment, pain, sickness, tragedy, accidents, suffering. All of these things remind us that not all, or all is not well. All is not right with the world. Well, what do we tend to do while we wait for deliverance? What do we do as we're caught in between and we know things aren't right and we're, we're filled with anxiety or suffering, whatever it is, what do we tend to do? Well, we tend to complain and argue with God. Why me? Why is this happening to me? What have I done? When will you fix this? When will you make right my own personal situation? Well, there's a right and a wrong way to complain to God. It's not wrong to argue with God, by the way, not wrong necessarily. It can be wrong, but it's not necessarily wrong to argue with God. There's a godly way to express our concerns and even our frustrations to the Lord, and that godly way is referred to as lament. About 10 years ago, I was pastoring a church in another state and had a new worship pastor who, like Pastor Chris, was very thoughtful about what he, the songs he would plan and kind of the way the order of service would go. And he came to me one day and he said, hey, would you mind if I start incorporating into our worship services some laments, songs of lament? And I said, that sounds like a beautiful idea. I love the idea. Please, please do that. And so uh, he did that. Laments are, are prayer songs that, um, that people offer to God because of either experienced suffering or observed suffering. And they complain to God, so to speak, as a way to sort of move God to action by their, uh, their laments. And there are some beautiful laments. In fact, it may surprise you to know that, that most of, 
the Psalms, that is to say by percentage, the Psalms are laments. Many of the Psalms are laments. Well, this worship pastor started singing, we started singing some Psalms of lament, and not, not just lament, but songs of praise and celebration and joy and worship, but also these songs of lament. And frankly, it didn't go very well. There, there were some people who, were, who didn't like it. In fact, after one service, uh, a lady came up to him and said, um, she said, why are we singing all these sad songs? Like when I come to church, I want to sing fun songs, happy songs. I want to sing songs that really get me moving. And so this worship pastor asked, not in a snarky way, but in, in a very sincere and I think a loving way, he said, is your life always happy and fun? And she said, no, it's not. And he said, well, what the Lord wants from us in our worship, as in all of our exchanges with Him, is realness, honesty, emotional integrity. God wants us to actually be real with Him in terms of what we're going through, even in our worship. And by God's grace, she received that with humility. Uh, well, when we read the Psalms, what we have in front of us is Israel's worship book. Uh, the Psalms, which are songs, teach us how to worship, how to sing to, how to pray to the one true living God. They give examples of how to do so. And in many ways, they invite us or permit us to be candid with God. Again, almost half of the Psalms are laments, either individual laments or community laments. And yet, most churches have actually gotten rid of, or maybe never even incorporated, into their rhythms the songs of lament. Pastor and author Mark Vrogop writes, Lament is how we bring our sorrow to God. Without lament, we won't know how to process pain. Silence, bitterness, and even anger can dominate our spiritual lives instead. Without lament, we won't know how to help people walking through sorrow. Instead, we'll offer trite solutions, unhelpful comments, or impatient responses. We need to recover the ancient practice of lament and the grace that comes through it. Christianity suffers when lament is missing. And there's actually an interesting backstory to this quote, and I'll share that more with that, uh, of that in just a minute. But, you know, as Christians, we love to tell people, it'll all work out in the end. You ever said that to somebody? I'm sure I have. But sometimes it doesn't all work out in the end, at least on this sin-cursed earth. The reality is things don't always turn out well. Things don't always have... Uh, glorious endings. Sometimes things in our life seem to go from bad to worse. Sometimes the people we ask God to heal, they don't get better and they die. Sometimes physical pain never fully goes away. Sometimes conflict goes on for years, even for decades. Sometimes relationships don't ever get back to where they once were. Sometimes love isn't rekindled. Now, praise God. Sometimes, often it is, but sometimes it isn't, and it doesn't do us any good. It doesn't sort of honor God if we act like we're doing amazingly well uh, when, in fact, we're not. So what should we do when it seems like our lives are turning upside down? What should we do when things are not going according to our plans? What should we do when things in our nation seem to be trending downward? There's violence in the streets, when the government threatens persecution of Christians, when the lives of the most vulnerable are not being protected, 
but instead are being threatened. When, what do we do when, when all this is happening? Well, God's people pray, and not, not just generic prayers, not just rote prayers, but prayers of anguish, prayers of lament, prayers urging God to do something swiftly for the sake of His name and His glory and for the good of His covenant people. So we're going to jump back into the story here. If you're in uh, Psalm 85, the people of Israel have been living as slaves to the Babylonians. Some have been released at this point to return back to their homeland. Um, some are still in captive. Uh, but when those who are released do return to their home, what do they find? It's been utterly destroyed. You know, tornadoes are a big deal around here. And can you imagine if you heard the reports of an oncoming tornado it was going to touch down right in your neighborhood and and so you, you left that area, maybe you drove an hour east to get out of the way, and when you came back to your home, all you saw was just rubble. Your house had been totally demolished. Well, the people who had been enslaved to the Babylonians, they've, they've returned home, and what was once this beautiful temple, a place of worship, is now ruined, decimated. Some are still living in captivity, and those who have been released, though, still live in fear, though, of the surrounding nations. And those who return, they cry out to God for deliverance. They cry out to God. They long for a true king, a true deliverer who will set them free from their oppression. Look at verse uh, one, or Psalm 85. Let me begin by reading verses 1 through 3. Here reads the word of the Lord. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. I want to pause there. This psalm really breaks down pretty cleanly into three sections. Uh, psalm one, or verses 1 through 3, the psalmist looks back on God's grace and faithfulness in the past. In verses 4 through 8, he pleads with God concerning Israel's current situation. And, and actually, in verse 8, promises to listen to what God would say. And then the third section, verses 9 through 13, the psalmist rejoices in the salvation that he knows is to come. The psalm begins with a, a, a superscript, which some of them do, some don't. Um, it says, to the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. tells us that this was written by the sons of Korah to the choir master. There are 12 psalms that are attributed to the sons of Korah. They were Moses' cousins who were also descendants of, of Kohath. Uh, the sons of Korah were the temple priests. They were responsible for the music in the temple. And so they had heard the stories of God's faithfulness in the past. They knew uh, of God's faithfulness. And so not surprisingly, verse 1 starts with a reflection on the Lord's past faithfulness. You were here last week. We talked about how God sometimes used the surrounding nations to discipline his people Israel to, Israel, to bring them back to himself, not as a way to destroy them, but as a way to restore them. Israel was called by God to be a special possession to the one true and living God. They entered into a covenant with God in which they promised obedience, in which they committed to worship him and him alone as the only God, but they were not true to that covenant. They violated that covenant repeatedly and sometimes continually in, in unbelievably heinous ways. Now, just to show you how serious covenant was to God, and this actually has direct application in terms of our marriages, 
um, when two people would enter a covenant, in fact, the Hebrew phrase is karad bari, that means to cut a covenant, what they would sometimes do is they would, they would cut an animal in two, and they would separate the sides of the animal, of course, the blood spilled out in the middle, and, and they would pass through the separated parts. Now, there, there are two things that were happening there, and one's pretty well known, the other one maybe not as well known. One thing that was, that was being said in that covenant uh, ceremony as the two animal, parts of the animal were split in two is what's happening here cannot be reversed. In other words, you can't take two halves of an animal, put it back together in the animal. That just can't be done. So that was one aspect of it. What's happening here cannot be reversed. The lesser known aspect of this covenant ceremony is that when the person would pass between the two halves, he was saying, in effect, May I be like this animal, should I violate the terms of this covenant? So you can see just how uh, severe the nature of covenant was. And this is why I said it has application for our marriages. When we enter into marriage, it's a marriage covenant with and before God. And you see how, how seriously God takes covenant. This is why we say to our children who are you know, growing up and teenagers and starting to date, we say, be very, very, very careful and intentional about who you date and, and indeed about who you marry because you're entering into a covenant with God, with and before God. Well, Israel had violated their covenant. They had promised to worship and obey God alone, but they had not done so, and so that made them deserving of death. But God continued to bring them to a place of repentance and forgive them when they repented. Sometimes people say the Old Testament is all law, and it's grace when you get to the New Testament. That's absolutely not true. The Old Testament is dripping with grace. It's everywhere. This psalm, despite being in part a lament, is a declaration and a celebration of God's grace. Here the people of Israel reflect on God's past grace. They say, you forgave our ancestors. You covered their sins. You reconciled them to yourself. You turned away your hot anger, and because of that, now we appeal to you. Restore us again. Revive us again. Here's the first thing I want you to see from this psalm, our first point this morning. Our confidence in God's future forgiveness is proved valid by His past forgiveness of those who have sinned against Him egregiously and continually, yet repented. Maybe you've you ever had a situation or a moment where you, you said to God, after sinning in the same way, you know, for what seemed to be the thousandth time, you said, God, this will be the last time I do that. I'm, I'm done with that. I'm not going to do that again, God. And then a week later or the same day, you commit that same sin again. And you think, I mean, there's no way. There's no way that God is going to forgive me this time. Maybe it was an angry word you said to a spouse or a rude, rude or hurtful joke. Maybe you lashed out at one of your kids impatiently or you looked at something on the computer or your phone you know you shouldn't have. Maybe you went too far with your boyfriend or girlfriend. What, and you think, you know what, this is, this is too much. I mean, I, God has to be done with me. Well, the reality is God's mercy knows no limit. God forgives sin more than once. He forgives the same sin 
more than once. Again and again and again, he is always eager to forgive those who repent. This is true in the Old Testament. It's true today. It was true of ancient Israel. It's true for you. Regardless of what you've done or how you've rebelled against God or how many times you've committed the same sin, regardless of how many times I have pledged my undying obedience, committed to God, I won't do that again and have done it again, God promises forgiveness to those who repent and believe. We see it all throughout the Scripture. Every time God's people should have been cut off, every every time they should have been officially uh, done with God and God done with them, He sends to them a messenger. Last week we saw it, it was Isaiah, who was one of those messengers who served as a mouthpiece of God. In the 8th century before Christ, 800 years before Jesus was born, when the nation of Israel was divided, things were bleak, people were desperate, they were hopeless, they'd help, they were helpless, they turned from God, this covenant-keeping God, and to these rebellious and hopeless people, Isaiah would go, and he would, he seemed like he had two messages, but it was really all a part of one message, one message. He said, repent, turn from your wickedness, and then in the same breath, take heart, I have good news of God's deliverance. The story of the Bible is one which contains this great rhythm. God warns of judgment for those who persist in rebellion and idolatry, but even as God pronounces this devastation on rebels and sinners and those who would reject Him, He always offers hope. Turn to me, repent, believe on me. God will usher in his kingdom. He will restore his people. He will renew his creation and he will do so, we see, through a redeemer, through a Messiah who would come. And it was this recognition, again, of God's faithfulness in the past, his forgiveness of Israel, despite their continued rebellion, that gave the people of Israel hope that we see in the first three verses of this psalm that he would forgive them again. Now look at verses 4 through 7, the second section. Restore us again, O God, of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord. And grant us your salvation. Let me hear what the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people. To his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. This section is referred to as a a national lament. Or a, a corporate lament. The whole community is complaining to God. Pleading with God to hear them. To return to them. To put off his anger toward them. And not just that, but also, verse 7, show us your steadfast love. Grant us your salvation. And what I love about this so much is that the people, they know that God loves them. They know that already. But that's not what they're doubting. They just want to experience it. They know God loves them, but they don't feel it at the moment. They don't doubt whether God is real or whether He is for them or whether He loves them. But they're not experiencing God's love in the moment because of their rebellion. They're not experiencing God's love in a sense of peace and calm that comes from reveling in His salvation. One Old Testament scholar, Tremper Longman, writes, The the lamenting community prays for renewed expressions of His unfailing love, which will result in the change from grief 
to joy. One of my first uh, mentors when I got into pastoral ministry was a, another pastor, a pastor under whom I served uh, early on. And uh, he was about 15 years older than I was. He was a bit of a quirky guy. I mean, he had all kinds of weird things that he did that I was able to, I was privy to, you know, kind of close hand. And, um, but I learned a lot from him. One of, the, one of the things that was really odd about him is he was, he was an extreme list maker, right? I mean, I, I'm a list maker and I, I write things down, but this guy, he wrote everything down. One day, I, I don't know why, we were having a meeting and he left for a minute and I was sitting there with his list in front of me. And so I felt kind of wrong about it, but I looked to see what was on his list for the day. Didn't stop me from looking. Um, and I noticed that uh, on his list, there were kind of some things that just seemed really weird. Like uh, on his list uh, toward the bottom was return home from work. I thought, if you don't write that down, are you just going to stay here forever? I mean, how's that work? And then, then there was this, literally on his list. Remove keys from pocket and put in basket when, you know, when home. I thought, don't you think you would realize at some point, like, something is really uncomfortable in my pocket here. But he had all these things on his list. Everything was written down. Uh, again, he was a very sort of quirky guy, but, he, but he, just, he just oozed wisdom. He just had so much wisdom. And there were certain sayings that he had that I'll never forget. One of the things he would say all the time, he would say, Let's let our theology help us here. And it was so helpful, just that thought. Because what he was saying was, in every situation in life, there's nothing more important, there's nothing more critical, there's nothing more relevant than what we think about God in that moment. There's nothing more that will drive our decisions, that will, will motivate our actions, more than what we believe about God, which is really the heart of theology. Theology informs not just our beliefs, but our decisions and our actions. Well, one area where the application of theology is so important is as it relates to how we view suffering. Because if we look at, if our theology tells us that when I'm suffering, it's because God is out to get me, when I'm suffering, it's because God has withdrawn His love for me, then obviously that leads us to spiral into great and terrible depths. Well, the people of Israel actually conversely, they knew that God loved them, even in His anger toward them. They don't say, prove to us that you love us. They don't even say, start to love us again. They already knew that God loved them. What they say in essence is, we know that you love us. We know that you are a loving God. That, in fact, they refer to His Kased, that Hebrew word, your steadfast loving faithfulness. They just ask God, show us your love. Meet us where we are with it. Because we just, we're not experiencing your love right now. Bring us to a place of restoration by your love that leads to joy and salvation. And I love what one Old Testament scholar, Derek Kidner, writes about this. He says, the prayer gradually gathers strength from the remembrance of God's self-consistency. They know God hasn't changed. God never changes. He's not uh, some mercurial being who's sort of up and down all over the map emotionally. He never changes. He's always true to His character, and He's always true to His promises. And the people of Israel, they know this. What they're asking is, enable us to, to experience the love that you have for us. 
Not restore to us our salvation, but restore to us the joy of our salvation. It's not unlike what the Apostle Paul would pray at Ephesus a few hundred years later. God, enable them, he's praying for the church at Ephesus, enable them by your power to know the height, the width, the depth of your love for them in Christ. Now, here's why this matters. This is our second point this morning. There is no greater comfort in suffering than to know that God loves us and that His love for us will never change. I mean, if you're, if you're, if you're experiencing a tragedy, if you've been through a recent tragedy, if you are in constant pain, if you've been dealt a terrible blow by way of a, of a diagnosis that you just totally didn't expect, if you have a spouse who says, you know what, I don't love you anymore, I'm out of here. If you have kids who won't return your call, if you're experiencing suffering in any way, the greatest comfort is to know that God actually loves you. He's for you, and His love He will not take away from you. As we saw from our sermon series in 1 John, which ended a few weeks ago, God's love is more than just a commitment to us, although it's certainly that. It's more than just a promise to be there for us, although it's certainly that. God's love for us means that He actually has an intense affection for us. That Hebrew word hesed, which the people of Israel used to describe God's love, is a word that God Himself uses about His own character in the book of Exodus. It's a word that combines this idea of kindness and generosity and affection and faithfulness all into one word. It describes a promise-keeping loyalty that is motivated by personal affection. God's love doesn't waver. And God's love is not strictly business, by the way. Again, it is a deep, intense, real affection for us. But that does beg a question, who is the us that God loves? We'll look at verses 8 and 9 again. Let me hear, and here we get to the kind of first person here, as one of the sons of Korah takes a first person uh, singular approach. Let me hear what the Lord will speak. For he will speak to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. See, the writer, this writer here is, of Psalm is, is, is writing a psalm that the entire nation would use. He gives us a glimpse into his own longing for redemption. But then he says, it's not a redemption for all. In other words, all will not benefit from it. There are three qualifiers in these two verses as it relates to whom God loves. Three explanations as to whom God will deliver. Verse 8, for He will speak to His people. There's one qualifier. Next in that same verse, to His saints. And then in verse 9, surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him. So there is a special love that God has for His people for His saints, for those who fear Him. It's a love that is actually different than the love that He has for the whole world. Yes, God loves the whole world. And, there's, and you can have no reservations theologically about telling anyone God loves you in the sense that God provides and gives good things to all. His love is, in a sense, universal. This is how He gives good things to all of creation. But there's, there's a special covenantal love for those who belong to Him. 
God's love is perfectly fatherly, which means that it's relational. It's not an abstract love, but a very personal love. Now, how does that help us during our suffering? How does that inform our laments? Well, as a perfect father who loves us perfectly, God cares about everything you're going through. God knows your every care and concern. He knows every sharp pain that you experience. He knows when you're hurting and He hurts with you, not in a helpless or reactive way, in a sovereign way. He knows what you need before you ask. I sent someone a text uh, just last week, and, and I, I, there was something that this, he had asked me to pray for, and I, I sent him a text on Wednesday. And I said, hey, praying for you, and so on. He goes, well, that was yesterday, so that's over. And I said, well, the good news is God knew, He knows what you need before you ask. And even though I'm praying for this today after it's already over, God's still going to work and it, it, through our prayers. God knows what we need before we ask. He cares about your well-being. And His love is not dependent upon your performance. And if we know that God loves us in that way, even as we lament even as we express our concerns and our complaints, we have a hope that His love will not fail us and that He will bring us peace. There's a great worship song I just became uh, aware of this week by Sandra McCracken. It's a, she's a singer-songwriter who gave us We Will Feast, which has kind of become a Cabshaw favorite. And this song is called Steadfast, and it's about the steadfast love of God. She writes, I will rest secure as you lead us with your light you are steadfast, steadfast. I will not trust in the strength of kings. On your promise I will stand. I will shout for joy. I will raise my voice. Hallelujah to the Lamb. You are steadfast, steadfast. Now here's a group of people, the Israelites, some of whom have been released from, from captivity. Some have been freed from, let go from slavery. They go back to their homeland and they see devastation and ruin. And they also, at the same time, are thinking about those who still remain in slavery. And they say, God, what, why are you doing this? Why have you disappeared from us? Where have you gone? And then they think, oh, wait. You were faithful in the past. We know that we can trust you to be faithful. Your steadfast love you will not take from us. Now, what are they looking for specifically in the future? Look at verses 10 through 13. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. I think if you have King James, I believe it says mercy and truth. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before Him and make His footsteps away. Now this is an interesting, I should let you know, this is, a, this is an interesting passage that's been interpreted a variety of ways, and it's, much of it is still left to mystery. But the way the section is typically interpreted is that the people of God are looking forward to God's future kingdom, where God will bring irreconcilable realities together, things like mercy and truth. Mercy meaning pure, undiluted forgiveness with no strings attached, and truth meaning unflinching objective accountability. Now, you think about that. So, one is, one is this undiluted forgiveness with no strings attached, but the other truth is, is 
an unrelenting, unflinching, objective accountability. You say, how can those two actually go together? Some say, well, this is what will happen in God's kingdom. And, and to that I say that's an absolute truism, and I believe that's absolutely true. I think that, that is what's going to happen in God's kingdom, but I don't think that's what's necessarily going on here in Psalm 85. There are hints and traces of another kiss, other kisses in this passage. In fact, one in particular, but let me, let me give you two. In the early chapters of Exodus, God met with Moses in the burning bush. And, and you, you may recall God tells Moses, hey, I want you to go and, and I want you to say to the Pharaoh, this wicked ruler king, let my people go so that they can worship me or serve me. And Moses you know, says, well, I don't know if I'm really the right guy for this. Like, I don't know if I'm really the right person. If you, I'm not a very good speaker. and I'm, I get sort of caught up in my words and I'm clumsy with my speech. And, I, and God says, well, who was it that made your tongue? And so Moses and God have this kind of interesting back and forth, and um, ultimately God decides to bring Aaron along with Moses. And so Moses, um, he's, he, he loads up his wife and his sons, and he heads into the wilderness in obedience to God's command. And God appeared to Moses' brother Aaron. He said, go meet your brother Moses in the wilderness. And Exodus 4.27 says, Aaron met Moses and kissed him. So it's the same two Hebrew words, pagosh and neshach. Aaron met, pajak, uh, Moses, and kissed him, neshach, met and kissed. The kiss symbolized union, friendship, peace, restoration. Well, a long time after that, in 33 AD, a man by the name of Judas approached the one who would be called the Prince of Peace, and he kissed him. Judas an unrighteous man kissed a righteous man, Jesus. The kiss symbolized union, friendship, and peace, but it was a false kiss. It was a false overture, which ultimately would represent a fake friendship and a disingenuous expression. So what does all that have to do with Psalm 85, verses 10 through 13? What does this famous verse, steadfast love and faithfulness, meet? righteousness and peace kiss each other. Well, I believe the sons of Korah who wrote this song under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, mind you, are looking forward today to the day when those two realities, those two, those, those seemingly irreconcilable realities would, would come together in a mysterious, supernatural and powerful way in a way that had not yet been seen. And there are two ways that this would happen. The first was at the incarnation of Jesus which we celebrate during the season of Advent. His coming to earth. Jesus, he, he fully embodied all of the perfect attributes of God. Faithfulness, love and faithfulness, righteousness and peace, all of the attributes of a holy God. He is the incarnation of God's love and faithfulness. He is, in fact, God in the flesh. But I believe it goes deeper than that. The other time that these seemingly unreconcilable realities would converge together was on the cross. In the, in the mystery of the cross, love and faithfulness meet. Mercy and truth kiss, as it were. Jesus bore our sins, fully satisfying God's righteousness. There's the righteousness. And in so doing, He reconciled or made peace with May peace between a holy God and a sinful world. On the cross, we can truly say that these, 
these perfect attributes, which seem like they couldn't possibly go together, they meet together in a mysterious and profound way. Again, mercy meaning pure, undiluted forgiveness with no strings attached. And truth meaning unflinching objective accountability. How can a person be totally forgiven with no strings attached, but also be objectively held accountable for his sins against a holy God? Only through the cross, where Jesus, the sinless one, took the place of the sinful. Only where the sinless one, listen to this, the sinless one was held accountable, so to speak, for the sins of others, for the sins that he never committed, so that the sinful world, by faith, could receive an unearned forgiveness. Their righteousness and kiss, righteousness and peace, kiss, mercy and truth are united as the Son of God, the perfect Son, takes on the punishment for our sins. There is the greatest expression of God's steadfast love. And there is no greater sign of God's faithfulness than on the cross. How does that inform our lament? How does that enable us to complain and argue with hope? Here's how. It's our final point this morning. Lament is the language of exiles and sufferers. But as the incarnation and cross display, it is a proper expression for those who have been eternally loved. You say, I don't know. I don't. I just don't feel right complaining to God. I don't feel right being that transparent with God. Well, I mentioned to you toward the beginning of this message that I read a quote about lament and how the Christian church really needs to recover the lament, and it's through lament that grace is poured out. Well, that was written by actually a friend of mine that I graduated from college with, who's also a pastor. He wrote uh, what ended up to be an award-winning book, I think five or six years ago, called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, and uh, just a really rich book. This is a guy, we, we both graduated the same year from a little Christian school in Ohio and played basketball together probably, I don't know, countless hours, pounding on each other, assaulting each other, uh, which kind of led to a bit of a bad blood between us, you know, the first couple of years we were there, but ended up to at least become friends on some level. The guy's name is Mark Rogoff, as I mentioned, and and he wrote that book after he and his wife lost a daughter, lost a child. And he said when they lost that daughter, he really had no idea, like, I mean, even how to process it. What, what do I even say? What do I say to somebody else, let alone what do I say to God? He said, I didn't know what to say other than to be honest with God, but I wasn't sure is that acceptable. And can I really say to God what I'm feeling? And in those moments of raw honesty, you know, he said, when I thought, is it okay to talk to God like this? Is it okay to, to, to have this level of rawness? Will God still love me if I'm that honest? He said, what I, have, what I kept doing is just I kept remembering the cross. People say, oh, God is sovereign, and that's absolutely true. But that in itself is not really a comfort. God is sovereign is only a comfort in light of the cross where we see His love poured out, where we see God's character on display, where we see mercy and truth kiss one another. And so, you know, you think about, again, we talk about this, this holiday season, the season of Advent being a time of, it's a time of joy, and it is the greatest time of the year, right? It's, we, we sing the songs about it, but it's also a time 
of suffering and, and a time of loneliness and a time of despair and a time of hurt. And it's a time when we are made more acutely aware than ever that things are just not right in our world. And in, in my role in particular, I'm made aware of that almost every day of the week. When someone says, my marriage is a wreck. Or someone says, my adult daughter won't talk to me. Or someone says, I've been in pain for four months now and it doesn't seem to be getting better. Or someone says, I lost my dad a month ago. Or I lost my mom, my mom this year. And become aware of those things. So how do we respond? Well, I think we're open and honest with God. That's what He desires from us. But while we lament, while we complain to God about the suffering we experience and the suffering we see, we do so with the hope that this is a God who has loved us. Those of us who are in Christ loved us before we were born, loved us before the world was made. It's a love that He will never take away and a love which is most profoundly expressed on the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.